Hi, and welcome to episode number 19 of the Crypto Chick Podcast, your inside resource for the latest blockchain and crypto trends. I'm your host, the Crypto Chick, Rachel Wolfson. Today, I'm interviewing Adam Gunther, director of IBM Blockchain Trusted Identity. In this episode, Adam sheds light on digital identity and its role in the enterprise blockchain space. He explains how digital identity benefits both businesses and consumers and provides examples of use cases to demonstrate this. Adam also discusses the challenges around digital identity, such as regulations and interoperable blockchain networks. Enjoy my interview with Adam. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the Crypto Chick Podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So, Adam, you're the director of blockchain trusted identity for IBM, correct? That is correct. So what exactly does that mean and and what do you do? Yeah, so um, a couple of years ago, uh, we formed as a team and we are a team that is dedicated to building out next generation identity solutions, in particular, decentralized identity, building on top of blockchain. Mm -hmm. So I think at IBM, we really recognized what blockchain can do uh, for an identity solution by helping to infuse trust and, and, and provenance of information without an intermediary. And, and identity is a great you know, solution area for that. Uh, so I lead the mission here. We've been at it for two years and, and having fun uh, blazing the trail. Yeah, wonderful. Well, right now I'm actually reading the Blockchain for Business book that Jerry Como and I probably can't pronounce the other names, but it's IBM's Blockchain for Business book. And it's amazing. Uh, yes, it is. I've got my copy right here myself. Great. Yeah, I have my copy also. So I think it's just such a great enterprise uh, blockchain book. So and it really, it goes into digital identity. So I kind of want you to tell our listeners what digital identity means in the context of enterprise blockchain and why this is so important. Um, so uh, digital identity, in particular to the enterprise, um, it's the key to solving some problems that, that we're not able to solve today, uh, like reducing fraud, in particular digitally. And reducing liability on enterprises and businesses. You know, we read about hacks you know, almost every day now, it seems. And a lot of the data that enterprises collect, they actually don't want. Uh, they collect it because they have to, because they're trying to be an identity provider, but they don't actually use it. And it just, it just creates this risk for them. And they want to be able to stop doing that. And, and then beyond that, there's an opportunity really to improve digital experiences. So, so I think before we get you know, too much into all of that, I'd like to take a moment and just talk really about when we mean blockchain and digital identity, what is the problem that we're solving? And, and what is the opportunity that, that blockchain is giving us? So today, in the physical world, we know how to do identity. If we were to have met each other in person, and I walked in, and you wanted to make sure that I was actually Adam, and you asked me to prove that, more than likely, I would open up my wallet, and I would find in it a government-issued photo ID. And I would show you that identity. And you can hold it up to the light and there's holograms and things on it. So that way you can say, hey, you know, this is a real ID. And based on that, you would trust that I was who I am. And then we would proceed in whatever we were going to do. There's some important things about that. I want to point that out because we've totally lost this in the digital age. One thing is that when I show you my identity, that's between me and you. There's no third parties. There's no intermediaries. It's a private peer-to-peer transaction. Also, when we do that, I'm giving you permission to see what's on that 
card. So if I don't want you to have my home address, maybe I pick something else to show you, um, or maybe I choose not to show you my identity. That's fully in my power. But I was actually still reliant at one point at the government to issue me this ID. Now, that was a peer-to-peer private transaction with me and the government. They went through some vetting. I had to go into an office, um, and I had to present you know, different things about myself. So the government would say, yes, this is Adam. And because they go through that, they, they give me this identity. Uh, they can later revoke that. But when they give that to me, you know, that's mine with their permission, and I can go show that to whomever I want. So we have this world where I have a wallet. I am the custodian of my wallet. I choose who I give access to what's in that. And all the transactions are peer-to-peer. We don't have these third parties that are tracking everything that we do. Right, exactly. Digitally, right, we have no way to do that on the internet today. So what happened in the 90s as the internet was being born is everybody became an identity provider. Everybody basically redid what, in this case, the government or other institutions are doing. And they're going to collect all my information, and then I'm going to store that, and I'm going to issue you an ID and password. Now, there's two problems with that. Well, there's many problems, but there's two kind of big ones. Number one now, everyone is now an identity provider. So everyone's gathered this information. It's sitting there in some database. And that is ripe for hacking, for being stolen. Um, and by being an identity provider, people are not very good at that. And it's pretty easy to you know, break into systems. And you know, people can impersonate me, steal username and passwords. We've tried things like multi-factor authentication, biometrics. You know, they're incrementally better, but we still have a large fraud problem. In the system. And then, you know, number two around that is as this these databases starting existed, some parties out there, and there's cases, you know, that we know that are very famous in the news, started to think, well, well, now that I have all this data, you know, how can I sell and monetize that? And people started preying on our data. Or people started exchanging data without our permission. That's the Cambridge Analytica example with Facebook. And these are all byproducts of the fact that we needed to create these third-party identity providers that can track what I do. And all the privacy problems, security problems stem from that. So now enter blockchain. Let's go back to the example of how identity works in the physical world, which works fine. The driver's license that I showed you out of my wallet. Let's imagine a world where when the government issues me a digital equivalent of this driver's license, as part of the public-private key encryption, they sign it with a public identifier that lives on a public blockchain that anybody can access. They give that to me. I store that in my wallet. We also have an exchange of private keys. There's other things that happen that we won't get into. Now, when I interact with you, we're doing this discussion right now digitally. How do you know that I'm actually Adam on the other end? I could actually now digitally present you this driver's license. And when you verify it, you can check that key signature from the government matches what the government's actually published on the ledger that is immutable that we know hasn't changed. And now you're able to validate peer-to-peer this identity that I gave you without any intermediaries at the time of that transaction. The government We're still preserving. The government doesn't know that I showed you my identity, but you're able to validate that it's a real license identity issued from the government to me that I hold. Now, I've used the government a lot in this example. You don't have to have government in the middle of this. But it's really, it's taking a lot of the concepts that work in the physical world. And now, because we have blockchain and we don't need these third-party intermediaries, we can actually make this work digitally for the first time. Mm -hmm. I see. 
And so in the terms of enterprise blockchain, can you give an example of a use case of digital identity, just so we can understand, you know, in those terms? Yeah, yeah. So now let me talk through a couple of examples. So now that we've provided this foundation that I can digitally provide you data about me that's vouched by somebody else that you can verify without a third party. Well, now what can we do? Um, there's exciting things that you can do now across you know every line of business. One of the uh, businesses that we spend a lot of time in at IBM is financial services. And one of the great use cases there is around, think about onboarding for a loan. And actually, I just went through this process uh, applying for a mortgage. Um, and my wife and I, we started online. And it's a crazy process. And I have to actually go and take PDF copies of bank statements, PDF copies of retirement statements, all of this information that I package up and I upload to the bank. And then a loan officer at the bank inspects those documents. They spend a lot of time manually verifying that those documents that I gave them are real. Right? Is that a real bank statement? Is it um, you know, a real uh, you know, 401k statement? Uh, there's actually a lot of personal information in those statements that the bank doesn't need to decide if I'm worthy for a loan. You know, for example, they don't need to know exactly to the penny how much money I have or what I'm worth. They just need to know I have above some threshold that I'm able to pay the mortgage back to them. So I've now given them tons of information. They've spent a couple of weeks onboarding me that they're paying somebody manually to do to verify the source of the information. They now have more information than they need. And it's just this horrible process that is still fraught with fraud today that takes a lot of time and is painful. Let's fast forward to the digital world. They tell me, okay, I need a proof of savings that you make that you have above $20,000 before I'll give you this mortgage. We don't need to know how much money you have and what accounts and what banks and what those account numbers are. You just need to know proof of your income. We need to know proof that you make above $50,000 a year from your employer. And we need somebody to vouch that you pay your bills on time. You can, you know, who can do that? I reach into my digital wallet, right? It's electronic, and, and, and you know, the user experience is pretty simple. And I say, okay, yep, I have uh, this bank statement from one bank that I can give you permission to share. And I give you permission only to know what my balance is of that. That is over some threshold. I'm not sharing the full statement and all that information. It's a piece of information. Uh, I've got my employer ID. I'll use that. I give you permission to see that I make above X amount of dollars, so on and so forth. I click the button. This takes me you know, under a minute to do. The bank gets access. They can immediately, by checking the cryptography against the blockchain, immediately determine that the data that I gave them is authentic and it's about me. And those cryptographic signatures match. So they can get instant trust. They don't have to spend weeks and, and manpower to actually figure out if that data is real. And then they can actually, based on that, if they want to probably instantly approve my mortgage. So we take this process that takes weeks, that's hard on me, it's hard on the business, it, it still results in a lot of fraud, and we can improve the experience, we can lower how much personal information is getting out there, uh, you know, we can reduce fraud, uh, we can reduce time to value, all these things now that is great for the consumer, it's great for the enterprise, it's great for Right. Yeah. I mean, and that definitely makes sense. I'm curious because one of my favorite enterprise blockchain examples that IBM is doing is the Food Trust Network. So 
you know, in financial services, that makes sense. But like in terms of the food trust network, how is digital identity being applied there? Just I'm curious to know for myself. Yeah. So there's a couple of different ways um, that we could do that, right? So when you think about identity in a blockchain network, uh, there's different roles that you have to think about. Um, so one is there is identification within the blockchain network mm -hmm. itself. So these could be the people in food trust that are running the peers on the network, as an example, or the people that are going to log in that have permission to access the ledger, whatever it may be. So that's one system. And, and, and that runs the gamut uh, depending on what the blockchain network is. And I'm actually, I'm not even 100% sure what, what Food Trust mm -hmm. is using for that. Okay. The reason for that is because is these systems are being built in parallel. Um, so at some point, you have to have kind of a basis for identity. Then there's the, the, the second thing, right? When we think about the, the members of Food Trust itself, right? Think about all the different suppliers down to the farmer, down to the intermediaries, this may cross with other blockchain networks down the road. So, you know, we're doing a lot of work with Maersk around global shipping. You can imagine there's an intersection between the food supply chain and the global shipping supply chain, right? So this is where standards, and we can talk about that, will, will come into play. Um, but we have this need for the actual members, participants. That's the big identity problem. You know, the onboarding, the people that actually are using the systems, whether or not they know they're using blockchain. So to, to number one, to validate the supplier, Right. I now have the potential. I can do that digitally through these identity networks. Right. Today, there is a know your supplier, or know your customer process. You know, even outside of the regulated world, there's similar things that will happen in a food trust network. And you know, I know from spending time with a food trust team, they wrestle with that challenge. Right. And now the ability to do that digitally, just like the mortgage example with the bank, uh, they can now in that same way, you'll get those same improvements as they onboard suppliers and participants of, of the network. The second is all of this work is being underpinned by global standards from groups like the W3C, uh, the Decentralized Identity Foundation, the Sovereign Foundation. We, we participate in many open source communities and foundations. And what that means is as Food Trust and as our supplier network with Maersk and as maybe the work we're doing around global payments, because if you start to think about supply chain, you quickly get into trade finance. All of these networks can now, these identity systems can talk to each other within the same standards. And we can achieve interoperability you know, from the digital wallets for the consumers. So you can start to get this more seamless experience as people use many different systems. And, and that's really important. right? We actually, if you go back to the internet, we did not do this very well when the internet started. We did not do end-to-end -end standards well. And if you remember the early days of the internet, if I went to three websites, maybe I went to ESPN, and then I went to Disney, and then I went to my bank, I might have had to open up three web browsers to do that because mm -hmm. nothing talked to each other. It was very hard to do anything. What we're trying to prevent now and why these standards are so important, and it's IBM, Microsoft, all the big companies leading the way together, uh, which has been great, so we can get it right this time the first time, you know, is that making sure that for the end user, we have one wallet that's interoperable across all these solutions. You know, if I own, a, if I'm working at, you know, some farm and I want to onboard myself into Food Trust, if I have to have a different digital wallet when I go to onboard to other networks, it's going to quickly become a mess for me to manage. Just, I mean, why would, and you say that and you bring up a really good point because obviously interoperability is, is very important when it comes to enterprise blockchain. But let's say there's um, someone who's part of the Food Trust network 
And, you know, why would they, I guess my question is, if there's a wallet or if there's a consumer, why would they want to be a part of another network? Does that make sense? Does that question make sense? Yeah. And I, I don't think it's, this is all, when we talk about the technology, it seems very purposeful mm-hmm. and there's going to be all of these conscious decisions going on. Um, I, I don't see the world evolving that way. I, I think you're going to have a business need to use the food trust network and you're going to go to do that. And you know, if we're down the road, mm-hmm. I probably already have a wallet on my phone, right? It's probably the right. one that you know Apple or Google stuck on there when I bought it. And I didn't know it. And it's compatible with these standards. And what will happen first is it'll say, you know, hey, I might get this message that pops up. You know, does the food trust network have permission to look in my wallet to see, you know, just the fields of data, you know, the names of the fields to see if what they need is what I have? Oh, yeah, I'm trying to do that. Sure, I give that permission. Okay. We found that you have a name, an address, a, you know, a, a, you know, Dun & Bradstreet number, whatever else it may be about my business that they need. And we would like your permission to have that data so we can onboard you to the network. And I may say yes. Or it may say, hey, yes, we have this or we don't have that. And it just works. When I go to the next network and, okay, I have some reason to now join this other network, I probably don't realize again that I'm using blockchain, that it's doing all this. I just want it to work on my phone, right? And, and, and that's the same, you know, that's the experience that if we don't nail that and do that right, then, then this is not going to be successful. Got it. Yeah. So, okay. That makes sense. I understand. So. If, for instance, I had a wallet on my phone and I wanted to be a part of the Food Trust Network, but also the IBM WorldWire Network, that one wallet can accommodate everything, is what you're saying. I, I, I think ultimately that's exactly how it's going to evolve, and I think it's going to be more than just identity credentials. You know, my physical wallet, I put credentials and money in there, right? So you can imagine cryptocurrencies and other things as well. And I think businesses are going to say, you know, we support this type of wallet whatever that standard is, you know, maybe decentralized identity foundation becomes that umbrella. So there's a little diff logo. And I know that my Apple wallet supports that just to make something up to be illustrative. So, oh yeah, just like today, if I use Apple pay or Google pay, like there's a finite amount of things that people support. And, you know, I know that I participate in that ecosystem. The, the other reason why that's important. And, you know, I, I learned this firsthand when I started working in identity, just traveling the globe is the world is a very diverse place, and it's naive of anyone to think there's going to be one magic identity model that works for everybody. Right. Right. What works for Thailand is not going to work for the U.S. Within the U.S., there's going to be differences with different states. I, I'm going to have some choice as, as a consumer of, of what I participate in. So what these standards do is it, it creates this world where we can allow for differences around the globe. And then it becomes policy and governance, which is important. But then, you know, I can just go transact and do business. I can board a plane to Thailand. I can get off the airport in Bangkok and go through customs and share information through that same digital wallet. As lo- and then it comes down to who are the people that are providing data that's in my wallet? And do they conform to governance policies that the government of Thailand accepts for me to show them and gain admission into the country? As an right. You know, you're talking about digital identity and we're talking about enterprise blockchain here. You know, in my mind, it seems like digital identity is huge for private permission blockchain networks, which is usually what enterprise blockchain is. But what about the public permissionless networks like the Bitcoin blockchain? And I mean, 
wasn't di- digital identity established in those networks first anyways? I mean, except you're anonymous, your identity is anonymous, and you're just defined through, you know, this long number. But I mean, Adam, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think first, I think we have to distinguish between digital identity and decentralized identity. So I'm not aware of Bitcoin using any decentralized identity solutions, right? Today, digital identity on the internet works with, it's a centralized model. I work with multiple centralized ID providers, but if I'm going to go prove to you that I'm me, there's always going to be somebody else in that transaction. And that means they can track it, they can do all sorts of things, right? It's bad for performance, it's bad for privacy. What we're trying to enable is peer-to-peer transactions without an intermediary. And then we use blockchain so we can trust the data that I share, right? If that data lives on a public blockchain, you're able to go without anybody else and check the source and validity of, of that data. The data is not on the blockchain, but the, the, the public key signature lives. And that's an important part. If anybody tells you we're putting personal information on a blockchain, just walk away from that solution. It's it's a bad idea. And I'm not aware of any mm-hmm. major solutions that are doing that. Then once you do that, now let's talk about public-private permission, permissionless. I think there are there are decentralized identity models today that are emerging in three different flavors of that that I've seen. Um, one is the private permissioned model. Uh, so we've been doing work in IBM with a company called SecureKey in Canada, who's just launched uh, first in Canada, a decentralized identity network with the large banks, RBC, TD Bank, Banco Montreal, et cetera. Um, Equifax has been participating in that network as a data provider. I think um, uh, I'm going to forget the name of the, the data consumer. And the network behind that is a private permission ledger. And, and the reason for that is people, some people want to adopt an identity model where they know there's total control over who has access to the ledger. And it's very restricted, so they can trust it. Um, We've also been doing work with a nonprofit organization called the Sovereign Foundation. And Sovereign and the stewards of the Sovereign Network, of which we are one at IBM, we run a public permissioned network. It's a hybrid of the two. It's public in that anybody can access it. So... If we go back to that digital driver's license example, if I show you my digital ID, your wallet is able to go verify against the blockchain without any special permissions. But the ledger itself is permissioned in that only the stewards of the sovereign network who have been onboarded and vetted by the sovereign network are able to write to the ledger. So IBM, for example, we are a sovereign steward. There are you know, other sovereign stewards as well, like ATB Financial, like... Uh, Cisco, like uh, Deutsche Telekom, and you know we all run nodes on the network, and it's a controlled environment as far as who runs it. But unlike a private network, the governance is 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 more open, and people can read what's going on, and it's kind of you know somewhere between this world of of of, of totally open and totally closed. Right, it's this hybrid of the two. Then there's also networks that run on Ethereum that do decentralized identity, and um, that's a permissionless network. People can anonymously write to the ledger. In IBM, we have not been investing in that um, because when we talk to enterprises, a permissionless ledger doesn't work for identity in particular, right? To have trust in who's writing that data, they have to you know, be able to audit and know what's going on from a ledger perspective. Um, that doesn't mean those systems aren't going to emerge for other use cases. And it gets back to interoperability 
So the solutions that we're building in IBM for the enterprise will interoperate with permissionless networks that are supporting the same standards. And then it becomes down to business policy. If a business wants to accept data from a permissionless network, uh, but from the blockchain perspective, the ones we're helping build out are permissioned, mm -hmm. but we're doing both public and private permissioned. I see. That's really interesting. Um, it's also interesting, and I should have asked this question in the podcast that's, uh, that actually aired before this episode with Bitfury and what they're doing with the uh, blockchain Bitcoin for enterprises. I mean, it's a lot um, of time stamping stuff, but I didn't ask about digital identity. And that's actually, I should have asked that. Um, it's a really good point that you bring up because that's um, mm -hmm. a public permissionless network. So I wonder if identity, like, I mean, yeah, I just, I wonder if they're doing anything with digital identity for that. Yeah, it's a good question. So then my next question is, you know, I guess now that we have a basic understanding of digital identity and we also have these use cases in mind, um, how is all of this being protected on a blockchain network? There's a couple of things. So one, I think we have to talk about what is actually on the mm -hmm. blockchain and what is off the chain. So if we go back to the, 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 the sovereign type model, which is what I've been describing, this public but permissioned model, what's going on the ledger is what we call a public decentralized identifier or a DID. And that's a W3C standard. And that is just that public key that the government, you know, I keep saying, I'm using the example government. I feel like someone's going to listen to this podcast and thinks this is all government. Uh, but it's a good example because people have a, con a concept of what a driver's license is. Uh, but, the, you know, if, when I get that driver's license, it's going to be signed with that public key amongst other things that goes on the public ledger. And that's that, that key missing ingredient to make it work. There is a whole set of architecture that lives at the edge that is off-chain. And in the sovereign model, we call those agents. So in this case, the government is going to have an agent, the DMV. And that's where they're recording the transactions between me and them. That is where they will be able to do things like you know, revoke my driver's license. So maybe I you know, do something that gets in trouble with the law and they need to be able to immediately revoke my ability to drive. Um, what's cool about this system versus the paper one is now when somebody goes to validate my driver's license because they revoke that key, validation will immediately fail versus the way it works in the physical world. And, you know, that's their system. It's private to them. Uh, nobody else has access to that. Similarly, as a consumer, you know, there's an agent behind my wallet. Um, I can pick my wallet provider, pick who has my agent. Maybe I have multiple ones. Maybe my employer requires me to have a certain agent and wallet experience for my corporate identity and data. And then I have a separate one for personal, whatever it may be. Um, and you know that's where I manage you know, my own private keys. You know, I, I don't actually know that that's happening as a consumer, but that's what that wallet does for me. Um, that's where, you know, if I lose my phone, which is equivalent to you know, losing my wallet, I can call up my wallet provider. They can revoke and reissue my keys. Um, that's an important thing because today when data is stolen, when there's a breach, my social security number is out there and I can't shut that off. I mean, I can freeze my credit, but that's, you know, not a great solution. Imagine if you could just very quickly revoke and reissue a social security number, right? Revoke and reissue. You know, when credit cards are stolen, it's not a big deal because the only time fraud can really be committed is in that window before I notice it's missing. And then I call up my credit card company. It's immediately fixed. And then I'm not even liable as a consumer. We now have the ability to do the same thing with data. So, you know, we just read about the Capital One breach, right? Imagine that just being, okay, 
you know, everyone's going to refresh and reissue keys. And okay, that's a little bit of a pain, but then it's done just like if your credit card was stolen and you get a new one. And then now it's done. I don't have to worry about it anymore. I don't have this fear on my mind every day of, you know, am I going to be exposed to identity fraud and theft today? Um, And, you know, I think that's an important aspect of these systems too, is it's not just making it harder for people to impersonate and steal, but, you know, reducing the attack surface but even if somebody attacks in that smaller surface recovery is faster and 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 i see yeah makes sense um yeah so i mean adam is there anything else that you think that our listeners should know about that we haven't actually covered yet because you know those are the questions that i have for you but maybe i missed something now i mean if i could just maybe just emphasize a couple of things you know especially for for the average person i think there's a a number of misconceptions that that continue to perforate. Um, I think one is, and it's a horribly termed name, this term of self-sovereign identity, right? Does not mean that I will now only vouch for myself and it's total anarchy and that's how the world's going to work, right? I am never going to be able to walk up to a car dealership, say, no, trust me, I'm good for the loan and drive away with a Porsche. It's just not going to happen. When we say self-sovereign identity, it's putting you as an individual back in control. We've lost all control over identity today. So having a system facilitated by blockchain where I have a wallet that I control access, and that's the only way people can get information, is hugely powerful. Um, And we do that in a way where we're not putting personal information on the blockchain. Blockchain just becomes the system for permissioning and digital rights management. And if we can go and enable that, I I think it's just, you know, it's going to be hugely powerful for, you know, both reducing fraud um, as well as improving the user experience. Um, and then the, the last part of it, I can just give one more example because um, some of the healthcare examples um, get me really excited. And it's really kind of why I took this job when I started learning about what we can do. So once you have trusted and you know, good digital data, I can validate the source, I can validate provenance. A corollary of that is we're going to start to have data sets that quite frankly don't exist today. So if we think about now, every time I go for a medical visit from birth, a doctor's office, I get issued back a digital credential that is my medical records. So now I have a full, complete digital medical history, which doesn't exist today. I walk into a new healthcare provider and they ask, you know, you have to fill out that form. I I don't know or remember everything. I've moved a couple of times. You know, I, I don't know that a complete medical history for me exists. So number one, I have that. Now that's powerful. I'm on vacation. I get sick. There's an emergency. I may be in a, some strange country. The fact that at a push of a button, I can permission that medical history is, is huge for care. Now the next thing, and this is a big area we're invested in at IBM. If I now add artificial intelligence and a business process workflow on top of that data, now I can do powerful things. So if we go back to the healthcare example, I now have all of this data that quite frankly doesn't exist today. I have it digitally. Now, imagine applying things like Watson Oncology to that. What could we do to transform cancer research, to look for trends and cures and diseases that we don't know how to solve today? So, you know, when you look across every vertical, there's different things you can do with AI and workflow. Um, and, and I'm really excited for the long-term opportunity, which is probably five to 10 years plus out, where we can, you know, r- really just solve some, some problems that are important for everyone. Uh, that we're just quite frankly can't solve. That's definitely a very good point and a really good example that you bring up. And I think, I mean, it's interesting because when I think about enterprise blockchain, I don't 
so much think about the consumer, but I think more about like the food trust network and, you know, the participants on that, like Walmart and Golden State Foods. And so what I like about the conversation we're having here is that you're really focused on the consumer side of things. I mean, I think it's important for our listeners to understand that enterprise blockchain doesn't just mean Walmart and Golden State Foods and, you know, the big players, but also benefits the consumers as well. And I think that we're just now starting to scratch the surface. I mean, right now, like the healthcare example that you just gave, we aren't there yet. But as enterprise blockchain grows and people start to understand it better, we will eventually get there, I think. Uh, Yeah, totally. And I don't know if people ever really fully grasp how these systems work and the fact that it's using blockchain. I mean, I use my Apple wallet today and that uses a lot of, you know, public private key encryption and, you know, I don't know it. And, and I think that's important too, because, you know, another criticism you hear of these systems is, oh, well, my grandmother will never manage her, her own private keys. And I counter that because I say, well, you know, I was actually uh, speaking at a business school recently and I asked the audience when I got that question, I said, how many people manage encryption keys today? And not a single hand went up. Said, how many people do online banking? How many people shop at Amazon? All the hands go up. Yeah, you get that little lock in the corner of your browser. You know, you are actually managing certificates today. You just don't know it, right? And that's how these systems are going to evolve and work. So, so I think totally. I think people need to, you know, not be afraid of the technology. I think let the enterprises and the businesses worry about that. The consumer may never be aware, um, but it's it's you know what we can do to help enterprises deliver better experiences for consumers, um, I I think that's really the ultimate power here. Yeah. And I agree with you a hundred percent. You know, and I I was also recently um, giving a brief presentation on enterprise blockchain at Stanford a few weeks ago, and I was using a lot of these IBM use cases. And, but I was looking at it from a consumer level, like how does the IBM Food Trust Network benefit consumers? And that's when people in the class were like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. I want to know more about it. So I think that enterprise blockchain has a lot to do with everyday individuals, but a lot of people just don't know that yet. And we need to raise awareness. And I think the Blockchain for Business book that I that I just finished reading and I love, I think it's such a good um, educational book. You know, it really talks about the business side of things, but then it also kind of talks a little bit about the consumer. I want to hear more about that in the future. So I think that's, you know, that's just my um, thoughts on everything. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, I completely agree. And I, I think it's going to be those consumer-driven use cases because ultimately that's how enterprises are going to differentiate against each other. Right? They're all in a race to, to provide better experiences than their competitors. And I think this is a way that they can can gain that edge. And the, the companies that we're working with, um, you know, their CIOs get that. They see an opportunity not just to reduce their cost, but provide better digital experiences. And you know, quite frankly, you know, digital identity is a bad experience today. And it's not doesn't work very well. Right. And I think, yeah, and digital identity, I mean consumers, that's huge for the consumer side. So I think it's good that we're raising awareness around that and that you're doing that at IBM. So I think it's very, very important. Yeah. So Adam, this has been a really great conversation. I'm so glad that you were able to come on the show today. 
If people want to find out more or reach out to you, how can they get in touch with you? Um, the easiest way to find me, I'm pretty easy to find on uh, Twitter. I'm active there. My handle is uh, Adam M. Gunther. And uh, actually, they can follow my feed too. And I'm, I'm pretty active talking about decentralized identity. So um, they can find resources to learn and they can find um, you know, what some of the latest going ons are. And then I would also encourage them, we have a great uh, landing site on our IBM page. If they go to uh, ibm.com slash blockchain slash identity. And there's a lot of good uh, resources there for learning, a lot of pointers to the open standards and communities we work with. And they could also follow along there for, for the latest news. Yeah, sounds good. Well, thank you so much, Adam. Um, we're out of time, but it was lovely having you on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it as well. Thanks so much for joining us today. You can find further information in the show notes and if you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Crypto Chick Podcast, please be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Also, if you have time, please leave me a review. I enjoy hearing your feedback. You can reach out to me on Twitter at RachelWolf00, on LinkedIn, or on Instagram at Blockchain and Bikinis. I look forward to your feedback. Thanks for listening. See you next time.